William Wallace's wild Scots were routed by King Edward I of England in July 1298, scattering over the wild moorland in tartan kilts and blue-painted faces. Well, that's Braveheart. It was described in the Times as one of the ten most historically inaccurate films of all time. The Blue Woad comes from the 2nd century AD, and the Wild Moorland from the 19th. And the Tartan Kilts? Ah, now there lies a story. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. In 1983, a very famous history book appeared entitled The Invention of Tradition. Sounds like a contradiction. Surely tradition is, well, traditional. Can't be invented. But the book came from a conference in which a room full of distinguished historians read papers which seemed to show that all manner of so-called traditions were in fact made up and pointing exactly to where and by whom. A whole lot of British royal so-called traditions, for example, turned out to have been invented by a civil servant called Lord Isha at the end of the 19th century. Well, that's a story we should come back to. But the chapter at the conference that caught the journalist's eye was about the invention of Scottishness. It was by a then famous historian, Professor Hugh Trevor Roper. Actually, what the professor meant by Scottishness was mainly just Scottish Highland dress, tartan kilts uh, and a bit of poetry. In 1983, Hugh Trevor Roper had recently retired from the top job, the Regis Professorship of Modern History at Oxford. Actually, I remember Professor Trevor Roper bursting out of his office at the history faculty in his mouldy gown and threadbare mortarboard, the cardboard all showing through. And he was the only lecturer who still insisted undergraduates go along to his lectures wearing gowns. Well, it was traditional. He obviously had a thing about tradition. By the time he wrote the chapter on Scottishness, Professor Trevor Roper had been elevated by Mrs Thatcher and was now Lord Dacre of somewhere or other near the Scottish border, where he'd been born. He liked to say that he'd had a Scots nanny, a Scots governess, attended a Scots school and married a Scots wife, except that he insisted on saying Scotch, like the whisky. He also had a holiday home in Scotland, originally rebuilt for Sir Walter Scott. Actually, Scott had just had it extended for his daughter to live in. Trevor Roper evidently had a thing about the Scots, also about invention. In 2008, a book he'd been writing appeared posthumously called The Invention of Scotland. Apparently now, it wasn't just Scottishness and tartan kilts that had been invented. In fact, it was the entire country. So how could Professor Trevor Roper claim that Scotland, or Scottishness, was invented? Well, as we've said, for the Professor, it all had to do with those tartan highland kilts. According to Trevor Roper, there never had been a Scottish Highland dress. In fact, he went further. There'd never been any Highland culture. In fact, according to the professor, there'd never been any Scottish Highlanders at all. He claimed that the people who lived in the beautiful, if rainy, north of Scotland were Irish. Well, presumably they were, as the Scousers put it, the Irish who can swim. There was, claimed the professor, no evidence that they played bagpipes or wore kilts. In fact, they had no culture of their own. They played harps and wore tunics. 
like the Irish. Now, Scots will tell you, and they have, that there's a lot more to Scottishness than tartan kilts and bagpipes. But let's go with the professor for a moment, because it's a good story and it leads to a dark conclusion. The earliest evidence of kilts the professor could find was from the 17th century, and then they were just lengths of drab woolen, four or five metres long, which you wrapped around yourself and fixed up with a belt, good for what the professor called, and I am quoting him, the idle life of the Highlander, skipping over bogs and rocks, or lying hidden in the heather. They were, he went on, and I'm quoting him again, a sign of barbarism, the badge of roguish, idle, predatory, blackmailing Highlanders. And it wasn't even called a kilt. The first reference comes from an enterprising Englishman, of course, who writes about the local quilt in letters he wrote from Inverness in 1727. And the short pleated skirt affair, nowadays worn by schoolgirls, as well as by royal and titled gentlemen on smart occasions, oh, and Scottish regiments, we'll get back to that shortly, didn't appear until the 1740s. And then it was invented, says the professor, by an Englishman. He was a Lancashire Quaker called Thomas Rawlinson, and he'd opened an ironworks near Inverness. The woollen belted plaids his workforce wore were thick and warm, uh, good for lying hidden in the heather, of course, but iron smelting is hot work. So the resourceful Rawlinson, being, we're told, quotes a man of genius, cool. took a pair of scissors and a regimental tailor from Inverness and created the shorter version we now all know as the kilt. The Scots called it a filibeg. Mostly filibegs were worn by soldiers. In fact, from 1747 until 1782, everybody else was banned from wearing them. It wasn't because, as one army officer tartly remarked, in a windy day, going up a hill or stooping, the indecency of it is plainly discovered. It was because, in 1745, the Scots had rebelled in favour of the Stuart pretender to the throne, Bonnie Prince Charlie. The English, therefore, passed the Disarming Act, which forbade the Scots from carrying weapons, but also from playing bagpipes and also from anything else that might encourage Scottishness, including wearing kilts. The Scots called it the Disclothing Act. Actually, many Scottish gentlemen now had themselves quietly painted wearing kilts, safely mm. concealed indoors, of course, as if indulging in a kind of secret pleasure. Perhaps it was a small political protest. The soldiers reportedly loved their kilts. When the War Office tried to put them in tartan trues instead, as a kind of trousers, Colonel Cameron of the 79th Regiment demanded furiously to know whether they were seriously going to stop, quotes, that free circulation of pure wholesome air, which so peculiarly fitted the Highlander for activity. The War Office beat a quick retreat. However, by the end of the 18th century, the English needed the Scots more than they feared them, since the Scots made excellent soldiers, and the English had massive wars to fight. So the kilts were unbanned for everyone, and Scottish soldiers were recruited in large numbers. At which point, says Professor Trevor Roper, enter Sir Walter Scott. In 1983, historian Hugh Trevor Roper, recently retired from the top job at Oxford, claimed that Scottishness was invented. It was mainly because he believed that tartan kilts were an invention of the 18th century. But it was in the early 19th, in 1822, that, says the professor, the tartan kilt hit the big time, and the man responsible was the novelist, Sir Walter Scott. Now, Walter Scott was the man who'd rebuilt Trevor Roper's very own holiday house in Scotland. 
Scott had been a successful poet until he found himself being outversed by Byron. So starting from 1814, he turned his hand to writing novels. He was hugely successful. He created a whole make-believe world of oldie-worldie Scottish castles and oldie-worldie Highland chiefs. And of course they all wore oldie-worldie kilts in oldie-worldie tartan. Well, everyone loved it and made Sir Walter exceedingly rich. So much so that he could build his own castle, constructed in fantastic fake baronial style and decked out in suits of armour. And a house for his daughter, the very one where the professor spent his vacations. In 1819, the English government floated the idea of a royal visit to Scotland. It finally came off in 1822. The government in London encouraged the overweight and fantastically unpopular George IV to make a state visit to Edinburgh. It was, in fact, an excuse to keep him away from a diplomatically sensitive congress that was being held in Verona. And it was also a publicity stunt to try to soothe sore feelings over the violence used by the British army to put down a week of strikes in Glasgow in 1820. Three leaders had been executed, one decapitated, and 20 had been given hard labour. Well, it was a stroke of genius to put Walter Scott in charge of the event. In 1818, he'd miraculously unearthed the long-lost Scottish crown jewels from in a chest below Edinburgh Castle. That's true. Did he find them? Apparently so. From 1819, along with a theatrical manager, William Henry Murray, and one Colonel David Stewart, Scott began creating a week of elaborate pageants, levees, balls for the king. Stewart had recently founded the Celtic Society of Edinburgh. It was, according to Trevor Roper, a club where members dined, quotes, kilted and bonneted in the old fashion and armed to the teeth. <laughs> Walter Scott, its first president, himself preferred to wear trues, but he was reportedly very pleased with the men in kilts and their, quotes, jumping, skipping and screaming after dinner. <laughs> For some years, Colonel Stewart, who'd founded the Celtic Society, had been touting around the idea of clan tartans, different patterns for each clan. They were, he said, deeply traditional. They weren't, says the professor. In fact, he says, tartan was a Flemish invention and the idea of wearing your own distinctive pattern had probably come from regimental tartans that had recently been invented in the British Army. But of course the manufacturers of tartan loved the idea of clan tartans. William Wilson of Bannockburn had been turning out tartan kilts for the army. He was now wondering where to find new business, well, now that is that Napoleon had been defeated at Waterloo and peace had broken out. Well, seeing a once-in-a-lifetime business opportunity, he got together with the Highland Society of London and produced a key pattern book, a sumptuous catalogue listing all the clan tartans. They were, of course, entirely made up. Take the Macpherson tartan, for example. It was actually a pattern Wilsons had been making for a family called Kidd, who'd used it to clothe their slaves in the West Indies. Doesn't seem a very practical idea. Mm. And before that, it had just been listed unromantically as pattern number 155. But none of that mattered to Scott. He instructed Scottish gentry to bring along what he called a tale of their clansmen to the royal pageant. He told them to turn up in, quotes, the ancient Highland costume. Mm -hmm. Highland and Lowland gentlemen alike scuttled off in search of clan tartans, which Edinburgh tailors gratefully ran up for the occasion. The king himself arrived with over a thousand pounds worth of tartan and old-looking weapons he'd purchased in London. <laughs> he also came with a kilt, uh, which turned out to be rather too short, and he had hastily to be fitted out with a pair of skin-coloured pantaloons. Well, it all went off with enormous success, uh, the pageant that is, culminating in the moment the king finally toasted, quotes, the chieftains and clans of Scotland. 
Not everyone was taken in. Even Walter Scott's son-in-law, J.G. Lockhart, yes, the first occupant of the professor's own holiday home, was taken aback by this, what he called, collective hallucination. The whole of Scottish culture had somehow become identified with the Highland clans, which, fumed Lockhart, had, quotes, always constituted a small and almost always unimportant part of the Scottish population. The conclusion you have to come to, wrote Professor Trevor Roper, is that the whole romantic notion of clans and chiefs and clan tartans had been invented by an Englishman, by a romantic novelist, and by certain cloth manufacturers with an eye to the main chance. It had even been spread to the lowlands, where, according to the professor, the Scots had never worn anything so uncouth as a tartan kilt. But, according to the professor, that was not the worst of it. Late in the 18th century, two writers, unrelated but both called, as it happens, Macpherson, had apparently discovered the writings of an ancient Highland Scots poet called Ossian. Now, Ossian turned out to be, quotes, an epic poet of exquisite refinement and sensibility. By 1822, his work had been translated into languages all across Europe, and he was being hailed as a Gaelic Homer. Mm. Napoleon himself had been a fan. Even the famous English historian Edward Gibbon was impressed as the author of Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Of course. So extraordinary was the writing of this ancient bard Ossian that the Macphersons were able to claim that the Highland Scots had a proud and ancient culture of their own. It proved to their satisfaction, and pretty much everyone else's too, that the Irish must in fact be Scots, rather than the other way round. You following this? Well, harumphed the professor, the sheer <laughs> effrontery of the Macphersons must excite admiration. The whole Ossian thing was clearly, quotes, an act of bold forgery, a demonstrable fake. But it wasn't the only one. Among the assembled tartan-wearing party girls in 1822 were two brothers calling themselves the brothers Allen. Oh, they were soon calling themselves Hay and subsequently Sobieski Stewart. Now, who exactly the brothers were, nobody's ever quite worked out. They'd grown up somewhere in Europe. The professor clearly has a sneaking admiration for them, though, not only because they had done a good deal of historical research, but they also had good manners. Very important. They quickly ingratiated themselves with the Scottish gentry. The brothers claimed not only to be royal descendants of Bonnie Prince Charlie, but have various ancient manuscripts that described in detail the ancient clan tartans of Scotland. In 1842, they printed a gorgeous edition of what they called the Vestiarium Scoticum, or the Scottish wardrobe. Five years later, they were exposed as frauds, and when they died much later in poverty, no ancient manuscripts were found among their possessions. But the damage had been done. The whole myth of clan tartans had arrived to stay. In 1848, Prince Albert bought the Deeside estate of Balmoral. Well, he had it rebuilt in Walter Scott's mock baronial style, and Queen Victoria had it decorated in Sobieski Stuart tartans. Visiting dignitaries were expected to turn up in their clan tartans. Mm -hmm. Well, books now poured off the press about clan tartans. In 1851, Sir Edwin Landseer would paint the monarch of the Glen, his classic biscuit tin image of a Scottish buck red deer, and the invention of Scottishness was complete. The wealth it created, concluded Professor Trevor Roper, quotes, went to the manufacturers of the clan tartans, now worn with tribal enthusiasm by Scots and supposed Scots from Texas to Tokyo. But that, as you'll have guessed, is not the whole story. <laughs> Thank you.
1983, Professor Hugh Trevor Roper, recently retired Professor of History at Oxford, claimed that Scottishness had been made up, by which he meant the whole idea of a Highland culture with its own literature and tartan and kilted dress. Scots historians have pointed to various flaws in Professor Trevor Roper's theory. Nobody disagrees, for example, that the supposed Highland poet Ossian was a fake, but his supposed writing was not. Or at least it contained well-researched fragments of genuine Gaelic poetry that really was remarkable in its sophistication. It turns out that the Macphersons, who'd supposedly discovered Ossian, had actually done their homework. Their publications really did show an authentic Highland culture that stretched back at least to the 14th century, if not even earlier. Well, it was something that Professor Trevor Roper should have known, since a large study of Ossian had been published in 1952 by Derek Thompson, who was later a professor at the University of Glasgow. Perhaps it's the wrong university. More recent historians have decided that Trevor Roper was basically right about when clan tartans had been commercialised. But tartan was not, as he thought, a recent Flemish invention. It has a long and distinguished history. Historian Ian Brown has edited an entire collection of learned essays about it. Fragments of tartan have been dug up in Falkirk, dating back to the 4th century AD, which in Scotland was still the Iron Age. Wearing plaids may have gone back to the Viking king, Magnus Burfutter. Well, that's Magnus Bearlegs. No, seriously. (laughs) Early tartans were made from different strands of undyed wool and came in various shades of brown. But the Renaissance brought a fashion across the whole of Europe for bright colours and elaborately draped clothes. And the Highland plaid was perfect for the job. By the 17th century, the plaid in brightly coloured tartans had become a distinctive feature of Highlanders, both men and women. If you were clever, you could drape the length of plaid in any number of ways, depending on your mood and the weather. According to Matthew Newsom, a modern specialist, you could even create pockets, allowing easy access to your sporran. Well, of course. Or you pulled your plaid up and touched it into your belt, forming a large bag for carrying. Most often, writes Matthew Newsom, part of it is drawn up from the back onto the left shoulder and part drawn up under the left arm across the front and pinned together. You following this? In this way, it will create a large bag under the left arm and is quite striking in appearance. So there you go. Scotsmen fighting abroad, for example in the Thirty Years' War in what's now Germany between 1618 and 1648, were easily identified by their tartan plaids and known as the Devils in Skirts. You didn't have a clan tartan, you just chose whatever colour you fancied. If you were rich, you chose red, since it was expensive to fix red dye in long lengths of woollen. Some were so colourful they were told to tone them down for church. By the end of the 17th century, tartan had picked up a political meaning associated with the Stuart kings, with their Scottish origins, which was why, after the rebellion of James Edward Stuart in 1715 and of Charles Edward Stuart in 1745, the English banned tartan, kilts and everything else, including bagpipes, anything that might be used as a rebel Stuart badge. You remember the Scots called it the Disclothing Act of 1747. Historian Hugh Cheap has even looked into distinct clan tartans and found that there were some Highland families who'd begun to adopt their own distinct patterns as early as the 1720s. Well, it marked them out from the sober, English-looking, often Presbyterian inhabitants of the Lowlands. If Lowlanders wore tartan, it was often the old, undyed, drab, brown variety they called Maud. 
and when the army regiments adopted different tartans for themselves, it was partly because regiments tended to be recruited from different clans. So, clan tartan wasn't exactly invented in the early 19th century, as Hugh Trevor Roper thought, although it certainly took off then, and it was often completely fake. But like all historical events, it emerged from a complicated historical process that had been going on for a long time. But we can look more closely beneath these tartan kilts, as it were. By the 1820s, they were being manufactured in softer fabrics, suitable not for skipping rocks or bogs or sleeping rough in heather or even working in ironworks or fighting Napoleon, suitable for taking tea in a drawing room. The tartan kilt was becoming required wear for formal occasions, a mark, among others, of becoming a gentleman. It's the complete opposite of what it began now, gentility was extremely important to men like the novelist Walter Scott. He would do his writing before breakfast and publish his books anonymously so that refined visitors to his mock baronial hall would never know he wasn't a real gentleman, but a mere author who worked for a living. Oh. He would spend his days fishing with visitors, and most importantly, if you want to pass yourself off as a gentleman, talking to his dogs. And he wasn't unusual. Wealthy Scots were now buying up titles, perhaps even changing their names to sound more distinguished. By the 1830s, right across Britain, not to mention the States and Russia and no doubt elsewhere, there was a thriving industry in genealogy. It went along with the craze for building castles, with sample designs being touted by enterprising architects. By creating family trees, you could prove you were in a class above your tenants and neighbours. So, of course, in Scotland... Clan tartans were all the rage too. Even if you didn't actually have the gentlemanly ancestors, you could at least wear the gear. Professor Trevor Roper has fallen into one of the simplest historical bear traps. Like a lot of history books written before the 1970s, he imagines that because something came into use at a particular time, it must have been invented then. Well, it's not true. In the 1780s, for example, James Watt invented the valves that could make Newcomen's steam engine drive factory machinery. But it didn't come into anything like widespread use until the 1840s. Ask any inventor and they'll tell you, you don't just need a good idea, you need a market. And the point about Clan Tartans was that they became popular in the early 19th century, not because they were necessarily invented then, but because there was suddenly a market for them. So now we have a much more interesting question. Why was there suddenly a market for genealogy and mock chivalry and clan tartans in early 19th century Scotland? And this is where the story takes an altogether darker turn. Tartans hit the big time in Scotland in the early 19th century, not, as Professor Trevor Roper believed, because Scottishness had suddenly been invented, but because deep processes were at work in Scottish society. Since at least the early 18th century, the landscape of lowland Scotland had been transformed by what we might broadly call enclosure. That's the process of combining individual small plots of land and sometimes common grazing land into larger farms. South of the border in England, enclosure is a long and much misunderstood process and we must come back to it at the History Café. But in Scotland, it was quicker and more painful 
What had been a society of villages and mixed agriculture was, over the course of just a century and a half, swept aside. At first it made way for a grazing ranch land, largely for sheep and partly for cattle. What's become known as the clearances was sometimes brutal, if not always. The Lamentation of the People of Galloway, written in the 1720s, put it simply, quotes, the poor man says, where shall we go? The rich man says, go to hell. People went to prison for only a copy of it. Between 1750 and 1800, 21 little settlements were destroyed, for example, in just the Lammermuir Hills, southeast of Edinburgh. Between 1800 and 1825, 54 were pulled down. Now, it's a complex phenomenon. In many places, new villages, even new towns, were built for the farming people who lost their land and homes. Well, they found jobs in sawmills, breweries and weaving. Many were enticed away by promises of land in America. Others were put into crofts with tiny landholdings. Actually, the population of rural Scotland went on rising until the 1830s. However, it's also true that over large tracts of land where villages had stood, a class of newly wealthy landowners emerged. A few of them from old families, many more were lawyers and businessmen from the towns who'd made their money, especially lawyers, and bought land and tried to turn themselves into gentry. In the Highlands, this process of clearances was later and more bloody, perhaps because there were fewer little towns where evicted farmers could go and revive their cottage industries. Most notorious were the clearances of the Sutherland estates of the Stafford family in the far northeast. Here, between 1812 and 1814, the estate factor, the infamous Patrick Seller, burnt the heather where the villagers grazed their cattle, kicked families out of their homes, set fire to them, and summoned the army when villagers fought back. They wrote poems about him, comparing his nose to a porpoise and his lower abdomen to an ass. Maybe it rhymes in Gaelic. Elsewhere, like feudal villains from the Middle Ages, crofters were made to quit if they broke repressive conditions, for example if they married or took in lodgers. There were serious riots on dozens of estates from the 1820s to the 1850s, often led by women who imagined that they would be less harshly treated by the soldiers, but actually they were beaten up and thrown in prison for up to eight months, just like the men. Some men also dressed up as women, which rioting men have done throughout history. Now, Patrick Seller had been trying to turn the land over to sheep. But what caused much of the mass clearances of the poor from the highlands, especially in the middle decades of the 19th century, was the transformation of the landscape for hunting and shooting. Landowners literally destroyed fields and villages, felled trees and turned agricultural lands into gale-swept, heather-clad moors where gillies led cash-paying parties stalking for red deer. The wild romantic landscape of the highlands we know today really is an invention, a fake created in the middle of the 19th century to make profit out of wealthy visitors hunting for sport. Heaps of stones still lie as memorials to the villages that used to stand there. In 1846, partly due to blight, which destroyed the potato crop, famine broke out among the crofters who still clung on in the highlands with their tiny plots of land. Scottish historian Tom Devine has found that over 75% of the land where there was famine had been acquired in the preceding decade or so by merchants, bankers, lawyers, financiers and industrialists and turned into hunting estates. Now population really did begin to decline. So it becomes chillingly apparent why there was a booming market for romantic highland culture and clan tartans in 19th century Scotland. 
the newly wealthy of the towns took the land and turned it into ancient-looking moors and wanted to buy into Walter Scott's romantic world of the clans with their untamed chieftains. What they wanted were titles and pedigrees going back into the Scottish mists, not of time, but of the imagination. The new lairds of the hunting estates built mock castles and imagined themselves heirs to an ancient tradition of highland life, where huntsmen skipped over rocks and bogs and hid in the heather before finishing off their prey. Clan Tartan, among other devices, drew a thick romantic veil over the destitution they'd caused. And of course the English aristocracy also bought into the romantic Highland myth. When Prince Albert bought Balmoral in 1848, it was in the middle of the famine. Well, no wonder its owner, Lord Aberdeen, a Tory politician who'd recently resigned as Foreign Secretary, was happy to sell. Albert spent his days at Balmoral hunting deer and game and the royal couple employed the Landseer brothers and other landscape painters to create romantic images of the wild Scottish terrain. Edward Landseer's The Monarch of the Glen was in fact originally painted for the House of Lords Tea Room in London. Long afterwards, in 1932, the Edinburgh novelist George Scott Moncrief coined the term Balmorality for this superficial idealisation of Scottish culture. So the whole Tartan story turns out to have been just the superficial surface of a much more profound change that was going on in 19th century Scotland. A genuinely old way of life was erased by moneyed investment and the tragedy was cloaked in romantic fiction. It was a fantasy created for the newly wealthy who dressed up in tartans and shouldered their guns for weekends in mock castles surrounded with deserted hillsides. No wonder these Aravis didn't ask too many questions about Ossian or the Vestiarium or any of the other inventions that helped fabricate their fantasy. Professor Trevor Roper's problem was that he'd looked no further than the literary texts and the men who wrote them. It's typical of a genre of 19th and 20th century conservative history that proclaims that great events are brought about by great men. It's still popular with an old conservative guard. But history isn't actually ever like that. Spend any time with great men or women and you always discover that what they do only happens because of long-term and deep processes that more often than not involve many people and ultimately whole populations. Like many historians, Trevor Roper was also scrabbling around searching to prove something he'd already made up his mind about. As the introduction to his posthumous book on Scotland explains, he only ever started to write about Scottishness in the 1970s because the Labour government was exploring a scheme to devolve more power to Edinburgh. Ah. As a Conservative, the Professor was completely opposed. Great Britain was one country, and that was that. Even though, as he should have known, they'd only become one country in 1707. What he very much wanted to prove, therefore, was that the whole business of Scottishness was a sham. All that business with tartan and kilts, it must have been made up, and probably by Englishmen. Well, in the event, Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1979, and the devolution project was scrapped. So, Trevor Roper lost interest in his book. The chapter on tartan was the only one he published, dusted off the conference on the invention of tradition. And the joke is that what Professor Trevor Roper had failed to see was that the people he was lampooning were altogether very much like himself. Mrs Thatcher immediately proposed to make Trevor Roper a baron. So what did he do? 
Well, he went ferreting around, trying to construct a family pedigree to show that he was descended from nobility and there really was a title he could claim as his own. In the end, he said he should become Lord Dacre because his great-great-great-grandfather, born in the middle of the 18th century, was the second son of the second marriage of the 16th Baroness Dacre. What is exactly what Scottish lawyers and bankers in Walter Scott's time were doing before they scuttled off and purchased a clan tartan from Wilson's? In 1983... The same year The Invention of Scottishness appeared, its author, now Lord Dacre, hit the headlines. He was by then a director of the Times newspaper. Well, the Sunday Times had paid $400,000 for the exclusive rights on 62 notebooks, which, claimed the owner, were the original diaries of Adolf Hitler. It was an astonishing discovery. The Sunday Times had the right to serialise them if, that is, they were genuine. Well, of course, they brought in Lord Dacre, who in a long and varied career had been in British intelligence in 1945 and been to Hitler's bunker, two years after he'd written a famous account of Hitler's last days. Well, he was now, of course, a director of the Times newspapers. But he was also the former Regis Professor of Modern History from Oxford. He was Lord Dacre. He would never be taken in. He wasn't like Edward Gibbon, who'd been fooled by the Macpherson's Ossian. He would never be swayed as a director of the Times by commercial considerations, not like the Tartan manufacturers who'd swallowed the Sobieski Stewart's fake vestiarium. Not at all. But on the 23rd of April 1983, Lord Dacre stunned everyone by revealing, in the Times of course, that the diaries were in fact the real thing. They really were the diaries of Adolf Hitler. Except that, when other historians took a look, they found that the diaries were full of historical blunders. And written on paper that wasn't made until after Hitler's suicide and had been stained with cold tea. The gold initials on the front had come from Hong Kong and in fact read FH, not AH. The journalist who said he discovered them turned out to be an agent of the East German secret police and the man who created them was a well-known forger. The sheer effrontery, we might say, must excite admiration. Talk about the invention of tradition. So was Scottishness invented? Well, yes, no, not in the way Professor Trevor Roper claimed. Like everything else in history, it was a long process, a whole transformation of Scotland and above all its landscape that created the wild highlands we know today, a process that brought enormous profit to a few and enormous pain to many. Traditions do get invented, but decent historians will always take a good look at the paper they're written on before they commit. Join us next week at the History Cafe for World War One. How much was it Britain's fault? For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. History Cafe.